You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. My name is Lisa Kovacevic and joining me in the cave tonight are Sally Christie. Hi, Sally. Hello, Lisa. And Cerise Howard. Hello. Hello, Sally. Hello, Lisa. <laughs> it feels like a long time since Cerise and I have been here together. It happens that way with us, with our little weird rotating schedule. Yeah. You feel like you're meeting old friends every week. I'm like, oh, I've been seeing you for ages. <laughs> um, on tonight's show, the life and times of a Queen frontman Freddie Mercury takes centre stage in the rock biopic Bohemian Rhapsody. And from the team behind South Korean zombie juggernaut train to Busan comes the period South Korean zombie flick Rampage. Uh, but first, back in 2004... Uh, the rampant? D- rampant, sorry. Did I say rampant? rampant? Mm. What did I say? Rampage. Oh, Rampage. Which was also a recent film, oh, I think, yes, perhaps with The Rock in it. I can't... <laughs> the Very Rock, also movie. the name of a film, I've I think. I've lost the ability to speak tonight, which is great considering I'm on radio. Uh, thanks, Cerise. <laughs> <Yeah>. Rampant. <laughs> um, yeah, we won't be reviewing The Rock film, uh, sadly, for some... Maybe next week. Maybe next week. Fingers crossed. Um, but first, back in 2004, documentary filmmaker and political commentator and activist Michael Moore released the Palm Door winning film Fahrenheit 9-11, an examination of America in the aftermath of the September 11 attacks, the corruption of the George W. Bush administration and their war on terror and the alleged links between the families of George W. Bush and and Osama bin Laden. Moore's latest film, Fahrenheit 11.9, plays as a sort of companion piece to its predecessor. The 11.9 refers to November 9, 2016, the early morning in which Donald Trump secured his historic election to the presidency of the United States. The film opens with a rehashing of all the pre-election liberal smugness about how America would never elect a buffoon like Donald Trump. Then comes election night and we see hope collapse, much to the shock of Democrats and Hillary Clinton backers. Moore then poses the question, how the F did we get here? And then proceeds to unravel this question while considering America's present state of democracy. Moore begins with Trump's motivations for running for president and how the political climate of the time created the perfect storm for Trump's election to the White House. But the film broadens its scope beyond Trump to skewer liberal apathy and the shocking lack of humanity exercised by elected officials in his hometown of Flint, Michigan, where due to a political cover-up, sorry, the water became undrinkable in 2014, causing illness and in some cases death to its residents. Travelling across the country, Moore interviews American political figures and citizens to get a sense of the social, economic and political impact of Trump's victory. Moore also takes an in-depth look at the media, the electrical... Sorry, the electric electoral college. I cannot speak. The electoral college and the government's agenda. Uh, released in the states in September, Fahrenheit 11.9 pulled in a modest 3.1 million when it opened across America. It's Moore's best performer, I'd say, since the 2009 documentary Capitalism, A Love Story. But still, it's a far cry from 2004's Fahrenheit 9-11, which launched with a record-breaking 23 million with the American midterms around the corner, and they're actually tomorrow at the time of the recording of this um, here show. Um, it made sense for Moore to release the film when he did, but whether or not it has an impact remains uh, to be seen. I just sort of wonder, actually, if, like, if we're, there's a little bit of... Trump fatigue, you know, and uh, I, I've always sort of, I've always enjoyed uh, Moore's films. Uh, I've always looked forward to them, but this one, I sort of thought, oh no, do we really need 
this film now? I don't know. Well, how did you guys feel, feel going into the film? Oh, it's interesting, I think, because when I remember going to the cinema to see Bowling for Columbine when it mm. came out, and obviously the internet was around then, but it wasn't as advanced as it is now. Yes. So it really felt to me, I was would have been maybe 18 then, that I was getting all this information that I didn't have before. So it, I felt like I was getting insight into things, whereas looking at this, it was... It was exactly what I expected it to be. Doesn't mean I, I didn't enjoy it or I didn't get anything from it, but um, I think with the access that we have to information now, Michael Moore's documentaries aren't going to be as profound as perhaps they once were. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. It actually wasn't the film I thought it was going to be. It didn't uh, hone its focus in the way, like Bowling for Columbine has a very clear thesis about yes. gun control and um, politics of fear, which for me too as a teenager seeing Bowling for Columbine sort of blew my young mind yeah. and opened me up to those ideas that I had not been familiar with before. Um, uh, I, I feel like this film sort of sidesteps it. We spent a lot of time in Flint, Michigan, Michigan, um, which I think could make its own documentary in its own right. It doesn't. It doesn't need necessarily to be a part of this sort of. Trump is actually not a, really a part of that story at all. Mm. It felt really chaotic a lot of the time. It felt like it was jumping from place to place. But I don't know if that was intentional as to be a reflection of the times that we're in. Well, yeah. But, it's about the yeah. corrosion of our mm. democracy, essentially. But yeah, I, I agree. It didn't feel co- as cohesive as his other films mm. were. What did you think, Cerise? <laughs> Well, what I got from this was a feeling of Hera, uh, sort of a sequel to in, in parts in this film to several of his previous films. So there's uh, Bowling for Columbine all these years later when we get to see the the kids at that school who then became sort of quite sort of, uh, celebrated activists and who've made quite a, a difference to the political um, uh, arguments presently being had in the lead-up to these, uh, the midterms. Tomorrow even, did you say, Lisa? Actually, tomorrow. And tomorrow. they'll be able yeah. to vote for the first time tomorrow, those students. Yeah, all of them. Yeah. Maybe not even quite all yeah. of them. I mean, yeah. what precocious little mm. things. I mean, they've been through such traumatic um, uh, incident only to then be rubbished by a lot of the far-right media there who even at one point declared many of them to be actors, <laughs> which doesn't come up in this film. But I, rec- uh, but then there, there was also with this focus on Flint, I was heavily reminded of the film that more first really made his name with Roger, Roger and me, me yeah. which it, it's it's interesting how, how troubled a time this town has had. It doesn't seem to be looking up, really, uh, poor old depressed, um, generally fucked over Flint. It's, yeah. a, it's a terrible thing, learning of this bizarre poisoning episode, which is something that hadn't really made its way into the media here, whereas so much else in this film to do with Trump had, except perhaps... Uh, Moore's little gotcha at the moment, at the very beginning of the film, where he says basically we owe the entire phenomenon of Donald Trump to uh, Gwen, Gwen Stefani. Stefani. I know. <laughs> what? Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's Moore's humour, though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. It, yeah. yeah. But ultimately, it's not exactly a very profound point, though perhaps this was a tipping point, and it, it really was something that gave Trump a sense of um, the, the what what he might be able to do, how he might be able to milk uh, a run, initially fake, for president, um, showing that it was originally a stunt, which I, I didn't know. I mean, I, I didn't exactly follow Donald Trump's career in the media or in business with any degree of interest whatsoever until he actually started to become a, a genuine presidential candidate. I still didn't believe he was going to win it either the night before 
No I, one did. I never even was, entertained the thought. Well, yeah. no one did, yeah. which was his point. But he also, very early in the film, posits himself as sort of the only... Um, What's the word? Uh, he's pundit. Sort of pundit. Yeah, yeah, to call it. He called mm. it. He did mm. call it before the election, and he he'd sort of said, you know, apathy is not going to get you anywhere, mm. and um, you know, you've got a lot of disgruntled voters here that will vote for him, and it will feel good to them to, in the beginning, and then it will start to unravel, and which is what's happening now. The Gwen Stefani thing that you're talking about, um, Cerise, sort of also highlighted how it's he was trying to highlight how he's all ego driven so every every decision is driven by ego and in that incident it was because she was being paid on the voice more than he was being paid on the apprentice or something like that and he'd sort of i don't know made some sort of coup with that show and yeah and then um it actually ties up uh trump's own very obvious malignant narcissism with um the the very people running uh the tv in the states at the time and just quickly reminds us that many of these network executives have since fallen uh, because of the gains from me too that uh, so many of them were sexual predators and have actually been removed and these are all trumps the people he was pally with it, it's it, it makes a point but also doesn't really in, do you know what i yeah, mean I, it's kind I, of just oh here's some infographics quickly on here's yeah. another one and here are his vital statistics how he offended what was his mo it was a bit it was a bit weird and almost actually a bit creepy yeah and then actually the the, the film shows quite a bit of just at, at that outset when we're getting to know trump better just how creepy he is around ivanka his daughter <laughs> um, oh it's horrid well yeah, I mean that's a real um, uh, character assassination there, but not that that was, not that he didn't have enough material to work with. I mean, mm. I think there is a definitely creepy dynamic there, but yep. um, it's just an odd opening, don't you think, for a really state odd. of the nation film? Just to go, well, the president and his daughter got something creepy was, going it on. It was a bit salacious, and it's yeah. stuff that we've. I mean, I've definitely seen it before. I yeah, assume you've seen it before. It. Yeah, I mean, all, all this have. stuff yep. is coming, like you said at the start of the review. So it comes through our Facebook feeds mm. daily, you know. So to put it in a film is a little bit strange and a bit grabby. I think um, I didn't feel that it. I don't know. It just yeah, like you say, so it felt really out of out of place, mm. and the stuff of like all those broadcasters like Matt Lauer and then sort of branding them as it was sexual not predators. Followed up on. It wasn't was, followed yeah, up it was on. Just it like was sexual predator. No, That's it. It was shock. It was just mm. there for sort of shock and it had sort of nothing to do with the fact yep. that, that Trump was elected, I felt, anyway. One thing that I do think that worked with um, this documentary was that I didn't find Michael Moore overbearing in this, yeah, which true. I have in some of his mm. other documentaries, mm. and that he has kind of placed the focus on the people not being responsible for this shitstorm that's happening in America, but for, you know, their government being responsible and that also that focus on people power, which I thought, you know, was nice, where we look at those students from um, Parkland and the changes that they're making and also those teachers that had been given that raw deal that, you know, got together and made significant changes. So it was that focus on, you know, people power, which I thought was good. I mean, all his films kind of end with a... Um, call to action I think mm-hmm. for you know he's he's sort of preaching to the converted most of the time yeah. um, but I, I don't know I didn't leave feeling that these kids were necessarily going to be the kids to to make the change I, I, thought, I thought it was 
I don't know, after the, on the back of all this sort of Hitler Mussolini, he, he does, it goes into this sort of um, big analysis of how Trump, he likens Trump to, to Hitler and a dictatorship, which has been done before, but it's actually broken down quite well with a few sort of expert talking heads. Um, but I, yeah, throwing in that bit at the end about how the kids will save us, I just didn't, fit, didn't, didn't actually res- hit, hit me at all. And mm. I actually don't think like, if they're the ones that your message is for, they're not the ones going to the movies. They're not the ones that are going to see this film. They're the ones that are on Facebook and Twitter. And I just think Michael Moore's message needs a new forum. forum now. It actually doesn't feel like the cinema is the place to be um, rallying these kind of... His films used to be full of stunts as well. Mm. And the one he sort of perpetrates in this where it's really lame where it simply hoses a driveway I think what are you doing yeah we get it that the water's toxic but I think spraying (laughs) some of it on a driveway and slightly off it onto a little bit of grass uh, in the governor's mansion is really not the concrete started to melt now. Yeah, it's just a, a bit... Huh? Did, yeah. did I miss something with that stunt? No, because seems... I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, I, thought, I, I thought, is something more going to come yeah. of this? But it didn't. There's no. a couple of stunts. There's also one where he offers a senator a glass of water or a senator's assistant a glass of water from Flint and they won't drink it and it sort of falls flat because you're like, well, where did that water come from? I thought, you know? I thought that too because I thought if someone came and just gave me a glass of water, I wouldn't drink it mm. anyway. And it, you know what was weird <laughs> about it too is he sort of... He, there's um, footage of Obama visiting Flint, Michigan before uh, Trump's election um, and the people of, of Flint are, are really obviously excited that they're predominantly a black community there to see President Obama who supposedly cares about this issue of them being um, pumped in this toxic water um, and then he diminishes it by asking for a glass of water and drinking it and saying it's not bad um, and so uh, you know Moore's quite critical of Obama and the left as much, not as much as the right, but to a degree, and of himself is another point in the film where he sort of criticises his, his own behaviour. I think. I yeah. think that's new for it Michael is, Moore for 2018. Yeah, it is. A bit of humility. A bit of humility. A bit of a mea culpa. Yes. Mm. <laughs> Um, but then to do the same stunt with the water, I just thought was really bizarre. Um, yeah. So anyway, Fahrenheit uh, 11.9 is on, I think it's on wide national release actually at the moment. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Bohemian Rhapsody, the Freddie Mercury biopic. Uh, the film opens on the 1985 Live Aid concert, the talent-heavy worldwide rock show organised to raise money for the relief of famine-stricken Africans. Queen fronted by Mercury took complete command of London's Wembley Stadium and it is widely agreed stole the show at a concert where seemingly every major rock act on earth played. I, I didn't look it up, but it was like U2, Michael Jackson, Bob Dylan. Duran Duran. Duran Duran, yeah. Boy George, Bob Geldof. They're just the face I could remember from from the from the thing, do you remember anyone other the other big names? Sure, Melissa Manchester, <laughs> um, some other big names. Oh look, yeah, there was there was everyone. I, I remember tuning in at the time, though I don't remember if I saw Queen or not. It was a very long time ago. Yeah, it was a very long time ago. Um, I was probably a toddler. Thirty three years ago. Yes. Eighty five. Eighty five. Eighty five. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the film then flashes back to nineteen seventies London, where Freddie Mercury, we discover, was the extroverted persona dreamed up by the shy and closeted Farouk Balsara, a young man from Zanzibar. Farouk lives in an outer London suburb with his conservative. Pa- pa- Farsi parents, sorry. He, re- he, re- he rebels, goes out to pubs, meets future bandmates Brian May, Roger Taylor and later John Deacon. The four form what would later become one of the world's most iconic rock bands, Queen. 
The film then follows the years leading up to the Live Aid concert, chronicling the highs and lows of Freddie's career, some of the backstage drama and a little of his and Queen's creative process. In the world of rock music, Queen were an anomaly, sidestepping every restrictive binary, gay and straight, masculine and feminine, blurring the lines between high art and kitsch, pretense and self-deprecation. They were at once playful and profound. Musically, they melded rock and pop, opera and metal, as we just heard, funk and 50s doo-wop among a myriad of other influences. And Freddie Mercury himself embodied this fluid ambiguity. He was a gay leotard-wearing icon who drew a heavy metal crowd. He could belt out raw melodies like a rock star and pull back into a classical operatic style in the one phrase. Freddie lived a hedonistic lifestyle and sadly died in 1991 at age 45 due to the HIV AIDS virus, but his legacy remains a guiding influence for many performers and activists. The Bohemian Rhapsody biopic of Freddie's life has been years in the making. The troubled production potentially contains more drama than the film itself. Brian Singer is credited as the director, but he was fired from the production last year after a series of absences following clashes between he and the film's star. He was later replaced by Dexter Fletcher, who will forever be Spike from Press Gang to me. Yes, same to me. (laughs) Uh, Similarly, the lead role of Freddie Mercury was originally assigned to actor and comedian Sasha Baron Cohen, who worked on the film for six years but walked away from the project due to his disdain for the sanitised direction the film seemed to be heading in. The producers finally settled on actor Rami Malek, who stepped in as the lead. Sally, what did you make of the rock biopic? Did it rock you? you? I I find it very (laughs) easy to get swept up in a music biopic like Mm. this and one thing hearing Queen's music through you know cinema speakers was incredible um and I did get swept up in it and I think Rami Malek was really good I think they were all good with what they were given Uh, they all did the best that they could and what did you think of what Um, they were given (laughs) (laughs) what they were given uh the the dialogue was absolutely atrocious. It felt like it was one tagline over the next tagline over the next tagline. Um, So, yeah, I I couldn't believe some of the dialogue that was coming out of their mouth at times. Uh, And also the way that his sexuality was dealt with was absolutely appalling, I Mm. thought. It felt like... It was. It felt like something from the 80s where his sexuality was looked on as his downfall and we also had this introduction of a gay villain in a film which we, hadn't, which we haven't seen, you know, in a little while mm. in their manager, I think it's Paul Prenter, played by Alan Leach. Yeah, he was sort of a PA who got... Yeah, um, elevated. Yeah. Yep, yeah. and he status, yeah. was really put forth as just this kind of classic gay villain and... Um, yeah, I just I, I felt that his sexuality was dealt with in a very very poorly, and that his relationship with Jim Hutton, which was a huge one in his life, was really brushed over. I know that that wasn't the focus of the film that period of his life, but I know that that was an important relationship, and they were together until Freddie Mercury died, um, and he was felt like a side note for me. It, but I did really like all the shots of the cats in there. That was excellent. <laughs> <laughs> he was a big cat lover. Yes. Um, I think a lot of the problem stems from its PG rating. It's got a PG-13 rating. And to, oh, I didn't realise that. Well, yeah, and mm. so I just find that absolutely bizarre for somebody who, who lives such an outwardly hedonistic lifestyle. I don't know why you would even attempt to create a biopic with, with that restriction on it. Um, well, it's not a restriction in terms of getting audiences to it and yeah. this is a, a studio, it's a studio film. film. Um, it's meant to make a fortune. 
um, which might be how Mercury would have wanted. He, the, the film certainly paints him as someone really interested in money. Yeah, it did. That's it? a measure of success. But then he had a curiously disposable attitude towards his own music. Yeah. It's really curious. He wanted it to be enormously successful as measured by uh, sales, but then at the same time, so, eh, don't be precious about the songs themselves, just write some more, which is... Uh, perhaps a gift that uh, some people have, many do not. Most people can't be quite that cavalier about, well, just churn out another Bohemian Rhapsody if called upon. Mm. I I actually really enjoyed this, notwithstanding that some of the dialogue was quite um, (laughs) I did too, overall. I thought it was a great... Uh, Yeah, I I really enjoyed it. It hit lots of the beats I wanted it to. And I, I could think of any number of incidents in his life that I'm aware of that weren't included. Uh, I mean, I, look, this could have been a fantastic series, uh, really. It could have been a great HBO series. There's enough drama in his life and perhaps a little less in that of his bandmates, but enough there to, to span many episodes of a, an HBO series. I, yeah. I would, could have really enjoyed that. But this, this really honed in on enough to have me actually quite gripped the whole time, even though I generally knew the trajectory. And I knew about the, uh, the various people uh, who, who were... Uh, personified who weren't the band members but who were part of that mm. story, including the gay villain, whom it has been documented elsewhere was actually villainous. So, so he, he was that yeah, intense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but then other stories I've heard of about him, I mean, you know, maybe they took liberties too. I mean, who knows? What is the truth with any of these sorts of things? Even this film purporting to be Freddie Mercury's story, of course, finishes with the typical disclaimer that certain people and events have been conflated in the interest of dramatisation. I mean, mm. how, how much can we ever take from a, a film purporting to tell something truthy about the life of somebody very public, but who also, of course, had a private life, which we didn't really see much of? And by many accounts, he was actually, for all the, the, the decadence and hedonism in parts of his life, he was actually quite shy. Yeah. Um, this film shows him becoming lost, a bit unmoored from reality, and that's quite... I could certainly imagine that could happen. Um but, uh, I mean, of course, the whole time you know that the film's going to end on a note of triumph. Mm. And then a sad little, of course, Mercury died and so on. But we, but we know this. So the, it, it went there, got, got to that end point and really hit it. I thought Dude, the live aid footage I found was, that too. I, I really, really enjoyed I that. I thought that was a really clever way to end the film and I came out feeling great from it. Yeah. And I think there, it is nice to have a film where I come out of the cinema and I feel good. Um, we could have gone down the other road where it was, you know, obviously we all, Freddie Mercury passed away, we're all, all aware of that, um, but I liked their choice in ending it with live aid. I, I, I thought that that was such a cop-out. I really dislike this film quite a lot, but I, um, I, I feel like that the Live Aid performance, watching this film made me want to go home and watch a, a Queen documentary because I felt like I learnt or got nothing from this. Um, and that's exactly what I did. I went home and watched a <laughs> Queen documentary, which is streaming on SBS at the moment, which I enjoyed much more than I did this and film. I think I know the one you mean, and it actually reinforces a lot of what's in this narrative. Mm, it yeah. Does, yeah, it does. Um, um, I, I felt that the, the I, I really disliked the lead actor's perform, portrayal. I thought that um, it, it bordered on Alien in some scenes where he, I think he was so distracted by his prosthetic teeth <laughs> that they became the character for him. So he was constantly fiddling with them and they were so distracting and that kind of distorted the image that I had of um, Mercury where I never, I know that he had these um, this immense overbite but I, I, it never um, detracted from his charisma or 
um, he was such a, such a beautiful man to me, you know, and I felt like the actor didn't get that at all. Um, I thought the only time he really embodied Mercury or sort of hit something of his essence on screen was in those Live Aid performances. And that is because he he imitates it movement for movement and they shoot it shot for shot and I'm pre- and they interlay the music the au- they've taken the audio from the actual performance um, and melded it with their performance in, in a very good way it's seamless it's, well, it's it, uncanny in fact they are those actors are playing those instruments yes exactly you know, but then I just sort of think why did you do that when we already have this footage committed to screen why but, do I need it see it recreated well this is in higher definition than they had in <laughs> 1985 <laughs> I don't need it just for the hd to feel don't you no i don't (laughs) maybe just a little (laughs) (laughs) um no and i just i just thought what a waste of time because i went home and i watched the actual real footage and enjoyed it well it inspired you to do that it inspired me to do it and the best the other thing that i really enjoyed in this film was the music which had nothing to do with the filmmakers and i and it was just you know an excuse to listen to queen songs an excuse and appreciate them yeah well i'm not actually a queen fan but i really appreciate the the musicality and just how original and creative that music was and the the things in the film that i didn't enjoy were the small snippets where they show you some of the creative process and you know yeah that's naff but i enjoyed its naffness yeah, as yeah, well it was naff yeah. yeah yeah oh that's quite a good riff yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no, that was just terrible. Oh, another one bites the dust. Yeah. Another one bites the dust. Yeah, yeah was, that yeah. was laughable. No, I'm thinking more of the Bohemian Rhapsody um, uh, conjuring that they. There was with. one magnificent sound uh, vision gag in the course of that Bohemian Rhapsody involving a rooster. Uncanny. Oh, I yeah, brought like, the house down. That yeah, was, yeah, that was yeah, quite that brought funny. the house down when I yeah, saw it. Yeah, one moment of just a little surreal, just a b- bit of genius. Mm. The rest of the film lacked genius, definitely, but that moment was golden. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I See had it for really, the rooster, folks. a really nice time watching yeah. it. I did. Like I said before, that just to be able to hear Queen in a cinema was excellent, and I did definitely get swept up with it. I also enjoyed Mike Myers' yeah. cameo. and He was not recognisable. His little Wayne's World joke. No, yeah. I yes, there was. Yeah. I missed the main Wayne's well joke but all I was thinking was oh he needs to be in this film because he introduced me to Queen with them playing Bohemian Rhapsody in the Mm -hmm. car you know Wayne and Garth in the car as a teenager I was like what is this incredible music (laughs) this bizarre music Um, what was the gag I missed it um he said when they were listening to Bohemian Rhapsody, he said, you need something that teenagers can bang their head in oh, the car right. to. Oh, yes, yeah. yes. No, I did yes. hear that. I did hear that. But yeah. um, so that was the gag. Yeah. I um, Yeah, I don't know. I just sort of felt, I also felt that they just overlooked his sexuality in a strange way too, don't you think? Like, they kind of put it as a negative. They did. When he has said that, you know, he's sexually attracted to men, that was when things got bad for him. Um, yeah. And then he needed saving by his bloody straight, you know, bandmates. Yeah, I... Those bloody straight bandmates. <laughs> They're so bloody straight. there was that really interesting scene where they had um, all the bandmates up on a platform with their wives and then him just standing away from them. Yes, yeah, yeah. So vis- yeah. visibly separate. But then I, I, I was thinking, oh, maybe that's an intentional othering that that's, you know... Could be taken two ways. It could be. I don't. I don't feel that the film was that layered, to be honest. Or it that was very thoughtful. conventional. Uh, so like conventional. a very conventional music biopic. But I still think it was. It was good fun to watch. Can, can you imagine what this would have been with Sasha Baron Cohen yeah. as Freddie Mercury? I would have loved been good. It. Yeah, it could, could have been extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I certainly imagine he would have made sure it went further, which is, I guess, why he pulled out it of it is altogether. Why he pulled out. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
The the whole business with Brian Singer being the director and then not was crucial. I think he got mired in a scandal that's dogged him for years involving underage boys in Hollywood and uh, supposed pedophile rings and all sorts of mm. stuff. Um, so I don't know anything other than about the, the replacement director other than what you two just mentioned, yeah. both delightedly that he was gang. Spike in the press <laughs> gang. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but do we know whether... He's a, a queer filmmaker, which I do know Brian Singer is. I just wonder because there is a there's, there's not a queer sensibility to this film. No, there's some queer all. content. There is certainly um, a lot of worrying about queerness. Um, there's concern from the straight folk who are the, the majority, but also the dull voices in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I don't I. The film tries to have its cake and eat it as well a bit, I think. I mean, we do at least get to see Freddie kiss another mustachioed chap, and that's nice. You don't get that in all that many PG-13 films. Someone cheered in the cinema when I saw it. Yeah. (laughs) Which was nice. Yeah. I just found it so, like you said, Sally, so conventional. It is. It's very conventional. And you said, Cerise, it follows a trajectory that... you were aware of in terms of his his life but it's also just that classic um rock biopic trajectory as well he's like oh he comes from a conservative his parents are conservative so he has to rebel and then he, he meets the band and that, that makes him break free but it also it, he becomes part of queen so easily it's just like see, yeah it was a pun there oh, no, no, no. you got that um uh yeah but he just can't the queen is just formed so effortlessly there's no drama or tension there it's just like oh now we are the band queen and now we are incredibly successful and he and i read and hear that he was incredibly insecure a lot of the time and yet this film he's just always confident always sort of um over uh, over the top extrovert I don't there was no shade or color to his character at all I felt and there was no artistry in the filmmaking you know I think Mm. like something like I thought the concert scenes were pretty spectacular did you yeah I actually I I actually felt we just saw um what did we review the other week a star is born which oh they were amazing which shocked me I expected to oh yeah we both saw it we both were equally shocked um but those those live scenes were really affecting. I felt like, yeah, I'm in this stadium mm. with you. I didn't get that with this film at all. I don't. I didn't feel that that the the camera work really worked to put you in the moment or anything like that. I didn't. Uh, and and just visually as well, I thought I was kept thinking of um, Oliver Stone's Doors biopic. Ah. You know, and how I mean, I mean, it, people. Uh, uh, you know, have very strong opinions about that film, but I think at least he sort of had a. St- there was a stylistic quality to that to that film that tried to um, emulate a feeling of the time, and I just mm. didn't get. I didn't get a sense of time with this, except for the fashion. You know, mm-hmm. um, I have to say, it was is it Brian Singer with the the hair? Brian, Brian May. May. Sorry, Brian mm. May. That actor, whoever played him, whose name escapes me now, I thought was excellent. He, he was great. He stole yeah. every scene for me. But like you said, Sally, there was so little material for them to work with. <laughs> I, I, yeah, there was. <laughs> They yeah. all gave it their best shot. They did. <laughs> um, but look, if you are interested in uh, checking out Bohemian Rhapsody, it is on wide national release. Uh, you can find it online somewhere. Um, and I will take us out with... Um, que- oh, that was the other thing. The film ends. Sorry. <laughs> and another thing. The film <laughs> ends, but this review will, <laughs> will not. Will not end. Um, no, but I just thought... I know that a biopic can't um, include everything of a life. Like you said, Cerise, it's, it can just it sort of... should, And it shouldn't. It should just sort of be a chapter or an insight whatever but um he's sort of I thought I was reading after you know he, there was so much that he achieved beyond um that Live Aid concert it was strange that it was bookended by that event we start with Live Aid we end with Live Aid as if that was the pinnacle of his career he went on to create like opera he recorded opera and that Barcelona album mm-hmm. and um and then went into went on to win all these other awards until he 
sadly passed away in 91 and I just thought it was it was an odd decision I thought to, to oh tons of vignettes I would have loved to have seen him meeting Sid Vicious apparently that was a very humorous encounter yeah, yeah. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Up next, we are discussing Rampant. Uh, well, if you enjoy Korean historical dramas and zombie flicks, you're in luck. Rampant is a zombie flick set in the Joseon dynasty of old Korea. Rampant tells the story of Prince Lee Chung, who returns to his homeland of Joseon to fulfill the last wishes of his brother Lee Young. Lee Chung, however, is an irresponsible womanizer and performing royal duties ranks very low on his list of priorities. His sidekick outlaw Park Jong-sa uh, comes along for the ride and to basically eat kimchi and such. Um, the country is under threat. King Lee Joe feels insecure in his throne due to an uprising by his citizens as well as a conspiracy by his ministers led by the scheming Kim Jia-jun. Many are unhappy that the nation is subject to the whims of the Qing dynasty from China. All these challenges, however, are soon undone due to the discovery of a mysterious plague turning victims into bloodthirsty zombies or demons, as the film's characters refer to them. Soon hordes of demons invade the landscape and Prince Lee Chung must convince everyone to fight them before it's too late. On his side are action girl Diok Hee and fighter Park Jong-sa. Following the success of zombie juggernaut Train to Busan, Korean studio New are the production company behind Rampant, a zombie slash period slash action film hybrid. Cerise, do you think these hordes of the undead will recapture the box office magic of Train to Busan? Probably not. No. But, uh, <laughs> Short answer. I mean, on paper, this, this sounded just like gold, really. Yeah. Um, what meant so many films uh, set uh, in period times, uh, set in court, um, uh, concerning themselves with the intrigues of royal courts, so many of them could have been enlivened with zombie hordes <laughs> to salutary effect, I would have surmised. But um, I don't know quite why this doesn't work, because a lot of the elements are there, and there's some charismatic performers, um, but somehow it's just all a bit gormless. And the zombies or demons, but the, it's just this is a, a bit of a sticking point for me for a few films um, in the since the zombies became a thing again. They're just they're just much too quick. They're not that zombie esque. They're just rapacious and and they leap. So it's always a big a big argument whether we should have fast or slow zombies. Yeah. So I, I like the traditional slow zombies. Yeah, I like them slow and yep. moaning. <laughs> so do I. They had a bit of a mix, didn't they, in this one? There was a bit of they both. They felt pretty fast. Well, lots of them leapt, yeah. well, like yeah, uh, leap, like they? vampires in um, a lot of uh, Hong Kong horror films of mm. the, the 90s. It, it, it was a, a peculiar mishmash all over. And uh, the prince, I, I mean, I, I wish I known, wish I could have told what, he was really swearing when he was letting rip with some cusses that were translated really gormlessly. But I gather he was meant to be a bit of a lad, a bit of a wag. Um, but, of course, you know, there's clearly a heart of gold in there. He was going to do right by his country, by his king, by his uh, sister-in-law or something or whoever she was to him. It all got a bit cloudy, confusing to me what everyone's relationship was to yeah, everybody yeah, else. Yeah, I felt confused at the start of this film. Mm. Yep. But that's mm. intrigue of the royal courts all over. I usually struggle to keep Jack of who's who when they are all in their court finery, these people. It tends to make everyone look a bit uniform. Mm. Uniforms, you know, you know what I mean? <laughs> I do. But um, it's funny because this 
this film some, somehow reminded me of Game of Thrones, but a really bad Game of Thrones um, in that, yeah, there's all this sort of court intrigue and, and battles for power and then the zombies are sort of, you demons. know. Demons. Beg your pardon? Demons. Um, uh, yeah, are, are on their way. And so, I don't know, what did they represent? Did they represent his undo- the king's undoing? I couldn't figure it out. Well, I mean, there was one weird little <coughs> subtextual thing there possibly that they might have represented some sort of invasion from, from the China? West. Or oh, no, actually from, from the, the West. Because yeah. the, oh. the folks at the outset looked a bit, I don't know, maybe they're supposed to be Scandinavian or something. I'm not quite right. sure. But but to what end anyway? Yeah. What, what was what point exactly was – I mean, maybe I just don't know enough about the history of those <laughs> lands um, – but that's the other thing. I don't think that it utilised Korean culture enough either in the film. I thought that could have been really interesting, but it just sort of felt like I actually could have been anywhere that it was just in these Korean costumes of old and that was sort of it. And the sets as well felt like sets. Yeah. <laughs> they just didn't they didn't transport you. And I mean, that was the difference between, I don't know, my parallel between Game of Thrones uh, is that you feel really immersed in that world. And I am actually able to follow that really convoluted plot of Game of Thrones, which is incredibly um, in depth and um, complicated um, and the zombies in that are the uh, white walkers which sort of you know are symbolic of climate change essentially um, whereas I didn't I just didn't get a strong message from this one I don't know what do you think Sally I thought there were a couple of scenes in this that were really quite visually beautiful that ended up being there was a one sort of dance scene with the king both of them involved the king my two favorite scenes and then zombies <laughs> attacking the king mm. Um, mm. so yeah I on the whole, I struggle with the zombie genre now because I feel that we're really saturated in it and I find that it's hard to get anything different from it. And I thought Train to Busan was excellent mm. and that was the one recent zombie film where I thought, oh, you know, that is intriguing me. Mm. Um, I thought this was, you know, fun to watch. It was no Train to Busan. Uh, I, one thing that I did like about this was the humour that was in it. I loved, um, I think his name was Haksu, mm. was the prince's sort of little sidekick. He was hilarious. He, he was, made the film for yeah. me. I thought I loved him. I wanted to. He reminded me of Pigsy from that's Yeah, magic. totally. Yes, 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 Only totally desexualised. Pigsy was, um, oh, right. was, was very... Yes. Um, uh, you're gross, actually. But the, <laughs> yes. this guy was very was pi- sort of eunuchy. I think was, he was. You know, that was the term food, bandied food about. Was in his thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true. So he was my the pigsy character was my favourite part mm. of the film. I really enjoyed that. So yeah, with Train to Busan, you know, straight up zombie flick. There was any really comic relief in this, but there were moments in this film that I felt were very, very funny. And, and what of all these Korean films, Therese, that are... Um, well, I don't know if it's necessarily Korean, but just uh, there is quite a spate. I, I'm only beginning to get a handle on it that there really are a lot of Asian films finding their way into multiplexes now in Melbourne and perhaps other major cities, which I think is a very interesting trend and probably pretty smart on the part of the, the big players, the villages and Hoyts and mm. such, because a lot of other films aren't really pulling them in and there are massive audiences potentially at least four heard. films mm. from uh, China, Korea, uh, India. I mean, we, we are seeing more and more ads for films from these lands. Even mm. at Tullamarine Airport, I hopped off a plane the other day and saw a couple of Chinese films. It looked very mainstream, but they were advertised very prominently on mm. billboards as soon as I uh, emerged from the departure lounge. I thought, this is interesting. Mm. That's new mm. that they're getting that sort of a promotional push. Someone's somewhere has got a few smarts. I think people fly to Melbourne from other places. Yes. <laughs> Maybe if we let them know that their culture is represented in cinemas here, mm. we might be onto a good thing. Mm. And I think this 
probably augurs well for all cinephiles, even if this isn't a film that will be a flag bearer for a, um, a, a spate of perhaps very successful uh, Asian films and multiplexes here. But it's um, interesting. It, it's in the, the new guard somewhere there, but it's just it's obviously not a great film. But, no. But some great ones will follow and some crap, no doubt, too. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, that's about all we have time for tonight. Uh, we discuss Michael Moore's latest political documentary, Fahrenheit 11.9, which is on wide national release. Um, the Freddie Mercury biopic Bohemian Rhapsody, which is which is also on wide national release, and the South Korean zombie flick Rampant, which is in the multiplexes apparently. Is that right? That, is it, I just, think it's playing at Hoyts Melbourne Centre. Yeah, yeah, I saw it at the Jam Factory yep. on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Uh, Village. Mm. Yeah, we'll check all your movie guides for those. You've been listening to Sally Christie, Cerise Howard, and myself, Lisa Kovacevic. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.